Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Nice to see you again. A lot on our potential agenda today. I wonder if we'll get round to it all. As always, there's tons going on. One of the things that struck me over the last few days was something that I wrote about, actually, on our Substack site. I haven't spoken about it yet, that I came across a fantastic study from a number of people from Imperial College London, led by Professor David Miles, well-known economist. And it's a combined epidemiological economic study of the UK coronavirus lockdown, asking the question, very simple question, really. Should the UK completely release now or go along the timetable that's been laid down by the UK government? And it concluded that from a particular perspective, and we'll come on to that perspective in a moment, it really makes a lot of sense to release the lockdown now. And the way in which it approached this was to essentially do a cost-benefit analysis of the two approaches which struck a chord with me, but of course that's the approach that you adopted when you wrote that report last week, which has got an awful lot of attention, an awful lot of commentary since you published it on the on the behalf of another group, and we talked about it on this podcast, and indeed we, we've also written about it. So I thought we'd kick off today by asking you, Jim, about the two reports. One obviously was yours in an Irish context. One was the David Miles-led report in a UK context, but they use differing methodologies, but also a big overlap in terms of this essential cost-benefit approach. I know you've had a chance to look at it. What did you think and how did you think it compared to what you did and the conclusions you reached for Ireland? Chris, David Miles, who was a professor of economics in Imperial College, um, I knew him many years ago and visited him frequently in London. 
when he was an economist in an investment bank. So he's a top guy and he's written fantastic books on public policy and so on. So this guy is serious, okay? And anything he says needs to be taken seriously. As you say, he, he looked at the, the trade-off between Britain just opening up quickly now or a phased four-month um, easing of restrictions, as is the policy that's being pursued. He uses this quality-adjusted life years, Q-A-L-Y, metric that he didn't develop it but it has been developed for purpose of cost benefit analysis and it basically looks at your life years and the quality of those life years and it's it's a way of trying to weigh up the risk of more deaths and hospitalizations against the damage done to mental health income standard of living education and the provision of non-covid health care okay this was the approach I adopted and I suggested it is the sort of cost benefit analysis that should be done in an Irish context. Um, Miles and his colleagues have done it in a UK context and they conclude basically that the cost of the phased easing of restrictions is 10 times greater than if there was an immediate opening up of restrictions. And the reason why they come up with that sort of measure is, is they try and assess the impact continued restrictions have on people's quality of life, basically, um, on, under a number of different spheres. So Miles was quite conclusive in, in suggesting that a quick opening up of the UK economy on a cost-benefit basis would be the way to proceed. And um, I reached a similar conclusion in the context of Ireland. So I was actually reassured and um, pretty delighted last week to read this report from David Miles. Uh, but I guess a lot of it does boil down to this issue of quality-adjusted life years uh, Q-A-L-Y. What do you think of that, Chris, as a concept? Well, I think a lot of people would react badly to that concept, actually. If you asked anybody, would it be worth spending 10 million quid on extending your life for another year? I think I'd answer yes, provided it wasn't my money, because I don't have that kind of money. And more generally, if ourselves or our loved ones are concerned, there's no amount of money that is not worth spending on adjusting, on extending our lives there's no amount of resource that shouldn't be thrown at making things better for us, if only for a finite period of time, which, if you think about it, is true of any health intervention, whether we're given an antibiotic or COVID vaccines or whatever. It's all about extending life for a finite period of time. We're not, we're not infinitely lived beings. It's tough for policymakers. Governments and health agencies, health ministers in particular, have to do this sort of thing. They can't simply say we will spend an infinite amount of money to save a finite amount of lives. They have to draw the line somewhere. It's as if they are asking this question, you know, we uh, and which is what they do when any medicine is being assessed. You have to assess its efficacy, whether or not there are side effects and all of those other things that we're very familiar with when it comes to the COVID vaccine. But they also have to assess its cost. If the COVID vaccine was costing a million quid per jab, then somebody somewhere has to make a decision on whether or not it is worth applying. And these, these, this is a brutal calculus, make no mistake, which is why we don't leave it to individuals to make, because as I suggest, 
we'd all make different assessments as individuals compared to how we have to judge these things as a society. And that's what my understanding of what both Miles and Jim Power did last week, which was that they tried to do this very tough calculus that does raise a lot of emotion in people. But frankly, it's the only way that you can do this. You have to decide whether whatever health intervention you're making is worth the cost. And both studies reached the same conclusion, which is that you know there are a lot of costs associated with what we were doing. I was struck, for example, by a simple uh, amount of money that uh, David Miles mentioned in his study that the so far at least COVID has cost the UK economy £350 billion sterling, most of which lies in the future. We have to remember that a lot of the costs that we're trying to assess, we haven't actually incurred yet. And I would say that's as true for Ireland as it is to, for the UK and indeed many other economies. So I think these are incredibly useful additions to the debate. The other thing I would add about the David Miles study was that it, he didn't just do one central case. He developed this quite elaborate economic stroke epidemiological model to try and assess this cost benefit trade off and varied the assumptions. And, and simulated on the on on those different assumptions, almost always came up with the same answer: that it, it's actually much more cost effective to open up now than it is to open up later. And given the the accelerated way in which the UK is opening up relative to other economies, not least Ireland, this was striking. So it's an example of good science. It's an example of science, and raises the question again about whether or not our policymakers in all jurisdictions, Ireland and the UK in particular are actually following the science. And one of the questions I think it, it, it raises fundamentally is that could we have done better? Jim? The key premise in Miles's analysis is basically that, you know, vaccines are significantly reducing hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, we've seen the statistics on both counts fall dramatically in the UK over the last three months. So that actually sets up this sort of cost-benefit analysis that David Miles is suggesting, I think in a very fair and a very rational way. Um, I don't believe it's rocket science because if you consider in an environment where a vaccine program is being rolled out, where deaths and hospitalizations are falling dramatically, as is happening in the UK and presumably will happen here, in, well, is happening here in Ireland already, but probably to a much greater extent over the next month or two, as the vaccine penetration increases. But if you look then at the costs of the sort of restrictions we're living with at the moment in terms of the central bank governor, Gabriel Malouf, last week suggesting one in four SMEs will not survive once the economy reopens. Um, if you look at the impact on people's mental health, if you look at the implications for the health of the nation, the non-COVID health of the nation, um, the various diseases that have not been detected in the last 12 months because firstly people haven't presented at hospitals because they're afraid to and discouraged from doing so and secondly all resources in the health system have just been basically directed at COVID-19 you could go on and on but the, the costs of lockdown and ongoing restrictions are very very real um, and I argued in that report a couple of weeks back that we did not assess those costs at all in this country. It was a totally one-dimensional approach. I, I, I would ask you the question, Chris, you know, 
what could Ireland have done differently in your view? I think I've laid it out pretty clearly in my report what I believe the approach should have been. Uh, what do you think? I do think that what always happens at this point in the discussion is that it gets very emotive and it's, it, it already does when we start talking about quality adjusted lives. Um, say it sounds very dry and technical when we are dealing with you know quite fundamental outcomes. And so we need to stress that we are not lockdown sceptics. We're simply asking that question, could we have done things better? Could we have th- done things differently? And we, within that analysis, we have to admit the possibility that we could have done things worse as well as better. And of course, we have the example at the moment, the awful tragic example of some of a country having done things worse with India and just opening things up prior to vaccination, reaching anything like critical, critically important levels and indeed encouraging social mixing rather than social distancing. India is an example of how you do things worse. One of the aspects of the India example, though, that bothers me a little is the sense from some people, not all, but for, from some scientists and medics and policy wonks is that if you don't do things the way we tell you to do them, you're going to end up like India, which of course is a very serious threat and is, is theoretically possible, but I think is false framing and needs to, be, needs to be picked apart. As an example of how we might have done things better, there is actually an EU country. We're not talking about the UK here. We're talking about an EU country that has done things much better than Ireland. Um, and I wonder if you or indeed our listeners have um, paid any attention to the Maltese experience, small island economy. And they did three key things that I think that not only could we learn lessons from for the next pandemic, but we could still learn lessons for for this one. The first thing they did was that they availed of all EU vaccine procurement. They just took everything that they were offered. And in addition, and this is the critical point, in addition, they also bought up supplies on top of those wherever it could. Now, they paid up, which in, in a way is what both the UK and the US has done. They paid a price for this in, in, in terms of money. But they have bought, they have ordered more than enough to vaccinate their population twice over on the basis of paying up. And that was taking advantage, of course, of being a small country, but smaller than Ireland, but still Ireland, I think, still counts itself as a small country. And I wonder if many people in Ireland know that when policymakers hide behind the notion that we just did things the way the EU did them and there was no other route possible once we had made that decision, are aware that another EU country did that and it bought up its own supplies, extra supplies as well. And I think that that's really, really interesting. The second aspect of the Maltese experience is that it 100% only followed the European Medicines Agency advice. It took the EMA advice and applied it. It didn't do what Ireland did, which was um, then ask its own domestic regulatory agency and, and its equivalent of NEFET and its equivalent of the cabinet whether or not to follow that advice. It just said, we're going to follow the EMA, EMA advice. And this had the critical result of no delays. There was none of this shilly-shallying around with Johnson & Johnson, um, this on-off, this age cohort, that age cohort for AstraZeneca. It simply followed the advice, so therefore they were able to move more quickly when it came to vaccination. The third thing they did was that they got the logistics right. 
and this is where I think that the UK also got it right. They have loads and loads of vaccination centres set up very quickly over the island, got their GP surgeries ready for action and did the logistics properly. I'm reminded that I've been vaccinated by uh, an officer from the Royal Navy where I am in the UK. The logistics behind my own vaccination experience were pretty incredible. No queuing, in and out in a few minutes. It was absolutely seamless. And it seems that the Maltese have done the, the, the same thing. So I think that th there are lessons there. I think there are surprises there. Certainly there were for me in terms of what the Maltese have done. And I think that it's important to note now, and certainly in the future when we look back on all of this, that every single de day that you delay one vaccination program or another, that you suspend one vaccination because you're worried about this, that or the other, every single delay costs lives and costs jobs. And I don't think there has been that urgency in some of the ways in which some countries have, have applied the rules, if you like, or uh, the modus operandi that they've done. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I just, just want to ask you, pick you up on something you said there uh, about India being false framing, because I find at the moment, particularly following the publication of my report on COVID, the cost-benefit analysis or the attempt at same, a lot of stuff has been thrown at me like, you know, we're going to end up like India or look what happened at Christmas. I, I quite frankly, looking what happened at Christmas, I I think on a previous podcast, I used an analogy from my farming background that if you keep a young bulls inside in a field with no grass for a week or two, and you suddenly let them out into a field of grass, how they're going to react. I think that's what happened in Ireland last December. Uh, you keep people locked up basically for a number of months, and then you open up three or four weeks behind before Christmas. And surprise, surprise, people actually want to get out there and live a little bit. Whereas if we'd been open the whole time, or at least partially opened, I think you wouldn't have had this sort of uh, pent up demand as such coming into the system. So I don't buy that Christmas argument, but it's a very easy one for the zero COVID people, etc., to grasp onto and throw at you. The Indian one, I'm a, I'm a little bit less certain on, and I, I just like to ask you, you know, you said this argument about India is false framing uh, the question. What exactly is your understanding of why India has ended up in the really, really dire situation that it is in at the moment? And is there a possibility, as I saw somebody say in the last couple of days, Ireland could become India in the Atlantic if we open up too quickly? Well, obviously, I'm not a medic. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an epidemiologist. So I won't claim to certainty as to why India has ended up the way it has. I'm not sure even those scientists know. But from what we do know, it's a combination of a relatively small number of people having been vaccinated. And they not only opened their economy far too early, they positively encouraged via uh, political gatherings, political rallies during elections, sporting events and religious festivals where a lot of people get together, that their system couldn't cope with, if you like, the complete opposite to social distancing that the authorities actively and positively encouraged. That's what, what I have seen. The moral of that story is that you can only open up once you have vaccinated some critical level of your population. And that's why the vaccination is so important. And it's why we both stress that we're not lockdown skeptics. Lockdown clearly was necessary, and, but we question whether there is a uniquely correct lockdown, whether Ireland's lockdown was the right lockdown to pursue. 
I have banged on about, as you know, Jim, the indoors versus outdoors thing. I think that if we'd encouraged people to socially distance outdoors more than we have, we may not have had quite as bad a Christmas as we'd had because we wouldn't have had that release effect that you just mentioned. I do think all of the evidence says that a the vast uh, majority percentage, 90% plus of COVID is caught, has been caught indoors. And indeed, by driving people indoors through the very blunt lockdown, we may have actually encouraged indoor mixing rather than outdoor mixing, which would have arguably resulted in less. So I do think that there are aspects to the lockdown that you can argue with, point to, should have been better handled, data that did emerge, science that could have been followed that wasn't. But we're not lockdown sceptics. Lockdown clearly was necessary, but not necessarily the extremely blunt um, and unchanging nature of, of the lockdowns that we've pursued in these islands. Let's move the discussion on now, Jim. It's still pandemic related, but I, I think it's time in these discussions, although we will return to those kinds of discussions many times, I suspect, it is time to start thinking about post-pandemic economic policy. And there are a couple of strands to that that I, I certainly would like to touch on today. And I'd like to ask you for your opinion first of the IBEC letter that's been written to the T-shirt, the Irish Business Federation, uh, led by Danny McCoy, are asking for a plan. And there's also been some important work published only today by a, an Oxford professor about the EU's fiscal rules, um, which are going to affect every single one of us in the EU, to the extent that uh, I'm in the EU, EU these days. And certainly you, Jim, all EU countries have got to follow these rules. And there's a big debate being kicked off about that. But first, Danny McCoy and Ibeck, Jim, what do you think? Tell, tell us what's happened there. Well, one of the things that's become very clear in the media um, over the last while, um, and it's, it's particularly from those of the left uh, come out with this sort of barbed insult, uh, they accuse people of IBEC and anybody who argues for a pro-business approach to this as being a vested interest that shouldn't really be listened to. I think that is an absolutely stupid argument to make because at the end of the day, Without businesses, you will not have an economy. And without an economy, you will not be able to generate the financial resources that will fund social protection, future health services, education, etc. So I, I, it really annoys me to hear those people saying, but you would expect them to say that they are a vested interest group. Vested interest groups are important um, in many cases, and, and certainly in the case of IBEC, they do represent a very significant component, particularly of big business in the Irish economy. So it is vital, in my view, that IBEC is listened to in this debate. Uh, they wrote to the government on Monday night, uh, setting out a number of clear things that they are looking for now. And to be honest, going through the list, I couldn't disagree with any of it. Uh, they want a clear roadmap. They want dates and trigger points. And I think that is important, the trigger points piece, in the sense that uh, government setting itself up saying it's going to do something on a certain date is stupid, um, unless it is accompanied by some sort of trigger points that kind of puts a context on it. And they come out and say that vague sentiments like summer will be outdoors, is, which, which the government has frequently repeated in the last couple of weeks, um, is not a plan. It, it is just a vague sentiment as they describe it. So 
they're basically arguing for those who haven't picked up on the letter that keeping business in a level five lockdown when circumstances have considerably improved is undermining confidence in the system and it's undermining the sense of equity as society moves out of the guidelines and um, they go on and make the very sensible argument that the reason the rationale that government used not to open up non-essential retail for example was that they wanted to limit movement in public spaces well it's obvious to any clown in this country at the moment that movement in in public spaces is not being limited uh, we saw lots of video footage over the weekend of what happened in salt hill uh, portobello here in dublin um, and all over the country you know people are getting out they're gathering they're enjoying themselves uh quell surprise um particularly when the weather gets a, a little bit better so the notion that you should restrict supervised activities that are being run on a professional basis while at the same time people are congregating in public spaces with absolutely no regulation no professional approach anything in conditions in place to try and influence that behavior in any way uh, makes no sense whatsoever so i i think that you know what ibeck is saying is eminently sensible and i actually think it would represent um, from a public health perspective, from an economy and business perspective, um, absolute sensible strategy from the government at this juncture. But I am very fearful that the people in Neffet who have a one-dimensional mandate that has nobody on board with the vaguest interest in business or economics or understanding of same will try and push serious restrictions for the foreseeable future and if they do and we're going to find out i think tomorrow from government exactly what may and june are going to look like well if we're if we're going to be subject to ongoing restrictions i can assure neffet and government that people are just going to actually increase the intensity of what happened last weekend so i think you're going to get a lot more unregulated behavior from people which ultimately could backfire very badly so ibeck should be taken very seriously in my view and i think danny is spot on in this case more generally i think opening the discussion up to the broader context of economic policy post pandemic that's looking at what's needed over the next few weeks and months and i take all that on board i'm been struck by something that Professor Simon Ren Lewis has written of, of Oxford today, which is looking at the broader context of economic policy after the pandemic is over, and in particular looking at the Euro, Eurozone's fiscal rules. This is quite, it sounds like quite an esoteric niche area of policy that people may not be that interested in, but trust me, it's going to affect everybody's life in, in the Eurozone, and it will determine, for example, the shape of Pascal Donoghue's budget in the autumn, and it will determine the shape of all finance ministers of any political persuasion. The first Sinn Féin finance minister will be governed by these rules, for example, in a few years' time. And he looks at these rules. You may be familiar, uh, the, the business pages always refer to these rules whenever the Irish finance minister stands up and talks about spending and taxation, which is the Stability and Growth Pact, which were the rules that were put together when the euro was first being formed. Professor Ren Lewis, quite rightly in my review, my view, says that these were ridiculous to start with, and they caused a lot of problems, 
when we emerged from the last financial crisis, the great financial crisis. A lot of people's memory, I think, is blurred to think that back then we just had one crisis. Actually, we had two. We had the financial crisis and then we had the Eurozone crisis. They were two distinct things. One ran into the other, but the second one was caused by the stupid rules that the EU has put on itself with respect to spending and taxation policies. Now, these were put together essentially by the Northern European hard fiscal merchants, the Northern European countries, that essentially don't trust the Southern European countries and Ireland when it comes to spending and taxation. The Northern Eurozone countries believe that Southern Eurozone countries are fiscally feckless and that they said that once inside the monetary union, the feckless wouldn't have any monetary discipline. They wouldn't have the discipline of the bond markets. And that prior to the single currency coming into being, limits to borrowing were national. You could, you could only borrow as much as the markets would lend you as a country, not as a eurozone. And these, the, the hard money countries, led by Germany, of course, were worried that after the single currency, there would be no na national limit to borrowing or that discipline, fiscal discipline, the, the, these, these very important words for these people, would in fact be diluted. So that gave, gave rise to the Stability and Growth Pact, which imposed limits on both additions to debt every year, that's the fiscal deficit, and the level of debt, and the amount that overall a country can, can borrow. Now, prior to the financial crisis, that all worked pretty much as pre predicted, because what happened was the interest rates, you might remember, in places like Ireland and Spain, converged to German levels and fiscal discipline went out the window. That worry about fiscal fecklessness actually proved to, to be right, particularly when it, we, we might remember we christened the countries involved the pigs. But what happened after the financial crisis that it all started to behave very perversely. Markets came to believe because of the actions of, of European institutions like the ECB that individual countries can in fact default. And that led to weird and very unstable things happening in the bond market, all sorts of technical stuff that there's no need to go in today. And what it ended up with is that countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and Italy ended up with more discipline from the bond markets than they would have done, more trouble from the bond markets than they would have done if they'd been outside the single currency. And that's because you, those countries had given up their lender of last resort, which is the central bank, a technical term that happens to be very important. So they ended up in this very unstable situation whereby the markets started worrying about default. The reason why the markets were worrying about governments defaulting is that they knew that the governments couldn't borrow from their own central bank because the ECB wasn't going to lend them any money. So it all ended up that the risk of default led to a higher bond yield, led to higher risk of default, and it all became very, very unstable. And that's the situation that we've still got today. And the, the fiscal rules have been suspended, though that Stability and Growth Pact has been suspended because of the pandemic. And that's a good thing. But it seems that nobody expects anything other than a slightly adjusted Stability and Growth Pact to come back, that there'll still be these, these, uh, these silly rules that essentially, and this is Ren Lewis's point, focus on debt stabilization. Stabilize your debt levels and everything will be all right, is the message from these fiscal rules. Ren Lewis argues, again rightly in my view, that that would just set up more instability and will lead inevitably at some point in the future to another Eurozone crisis. Because what your fiscal policy should be directed at is economic stabilization, is making sure that your economy still grows and that you don't have perverse 
things happening like contractionary fiscal policy, policy to reduce growth during a recession, which is what these rules can very easily lead to. And this is all still because the Northern European countries still don't trust the Southern European countries and haven't worked out in the future. If you were to have a problem like the Greek debt crisis, how do you let a country like Greece default? And how do you distinguish between countries like Ireland and Greece? Post the financial crisis, Greece should have been allowed to to default and punished in that regard. Ireland clearly wasn't a default risk, should never have been considered by the markets to be a default risk in the way that it should. This is what these rules should be allowed to, to do, which is that Ireland, should it have another problem like it had before or similar, should be allowed to stabilise its economy and not forced to stabilise its debt, which leads to very different fiscal outcomes, both in recessions and economic expansions. What it means is, is that countries must be forced to tighten fiscal policy when they've got potentially big fiscal surpluses, for example. But you must have pro-cyclical, uh, counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So that everyone agrees, everyone agrees that the Stability and Growth Pact is not fit for purpose. But post-pandemic, everyone seems to think that it will still result in bad policies for Ireland and pretty much for everybody else. It's not just Ren Lewis. I draw your, your attention to something recently written by Olivier Blanchard, who's the ex-chief economist of, of the IMF, who also writes about it in these, but in slightly different terms, in my opinion, and in Ren Lewis's opinion, it's still too much focus on debt. But the system has a fatal weakness, and the fatal weakness is that it leads to unstable equilibria. Jim? Chris, when you talk about uh, pro and counter-cyclical fiscal policy, I I think for listeners' benefit, an analogy here uh, kind of describes it very well. Um, you're looking at a fire that's burning very brightly. Uh, you throw petrol on the fire, it gets out of control. That's a pro-cyclical policy. Um, a counter-cyclical policy would be a, a, a strongly burning fire. You throw water to try and dampen it down. That's counter-cyclical, going against the economic cycle. And that is how fiscal policy should operate in normal circumstances. But if you think about Ireland's experience after '99. Uh, our economy was at the peak, really, or approaching the peak of the Celtic Tiger, growing very strongly. We inherited artificially low interest rates because from Germany because of our membership of European Monetary Union. So basically, interest rates and indeed increased competition in the banking sector was just throwing fuel on a fire that was already burning very brightly. At that juncture, our political elite should have stepped in, our Minister for Finance, and withdrawn stimulus through fiscal policy. In other words, cut spending or increase taxes. Instead, what did Charlie McCreevy do? He operated on the basis that if I have the money, I'll spend it. If I don't, I won't. He fueled that economic boom by allowing current spending, particularly, get out of control. At the same time, they were cutting taxes and removing thousands of workers from the tax net altogether. So there was massive fiscal stimulus and it, it, it didn't make any sense at the time. And of course, ultimately, it culminated in the implosion of the economy in 2007, 2008. But if you think about that's the economic theory as to what should happen. But if you think about the political reality of that, um, if Charlie McCreevy had sought to withdraw all that fiscal stimulus from the system at the time, 
how would the electorate have reacted to that? Because the policies he pursued actually were policies designed to get Fianna Fáil re-elected, and it succeeded in that regard. So the, the, the political, the real politics um, of economic policy management is incredibly complicated. I have to say I agree 100% with Simon Ren Lewis's description as to how fiscal policy should operate and the nonsense of the fiscal rules that were put in place. He doesn't talk about it here, but if you think about two countries with, say, similar deficits, one with a massive infrastructure deficit, um, another with a very strong infrastructure, yet they are both treated the same way. I mean, arguably, um, you know, countries like Italy and Ireland should probably have been allowed run bigger deficits to fund infrastructure and so on. But the, 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 I suppose the point really is, if you develop new fiscal rules and if you uh, get away from this obsession with debt and you recognize that fiscal policy should be used by an individual government to control its own economy in line with what's happening in the rest of the euro area and with interest rates and so on, how do you police that? How do you get governments to behave like that? Because it is against every political instinct that governments have, basically. Well, you're still going to have to have a framework that says that during expansions, when the economy is booming, you don't spend the money that you then get temporarily into your coffers, a la Charlie McCreevy. You, you, at worst, you keep the money for rainy day, and at best, you actually put up taxes and cut spending during a boom. So that, for example, then if we, if, if we do experience the post-pandemic boom that I think is coming, Fiscal policy should be forced to be tightened during that period. Equally, if that doesn't come to pass, if those forecasts are wrong, forecasts are always wrong, and say by the second half of this year going into 2022, the world economy is slowed down, if the European rules have been put back in place, um, the Irish finance minister will be standing up at a, with a slowing economy being forced to raise taxes and cut spending. That's where the rules should be changed. Now, you can, in, you can introduce... Uh, more stabilization-based rules that ultimately are enforceable. Bring in the European Court of Justice to force countries to do this. There are ways of doing this in Europe, um, but it requires imagination because if they go down this route that they're going down, Eurozone fiscal policy based on debt stabilization, it's bound to fail again. That's the key message that I think I'd like to leave you with and leave our listeners with today, Jim. But we've run out of time. We're undoubtedly going to come back to this again. But thanks for another great chat. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope to have you on board again very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.